Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show. We are without Will George today, but this is a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. We have only Mark Wiley here today. Will George is out on assignment. Episode 426 on our network. We've got a repeat guest. He was on our show with Jim Rooney last week, Toe the Rubber. So we got uh, Tommy Craig back here. I'll let Will, or I'll let Mark introduce him in a minute. Uh, before we get going, just want to thank our our sponsor, Jaw Bats. We appreciate the relationship with them. New one. They're going to be the newest certified bat in Major League Baseball this year. Our very own Jeff Fry with She Gone Podcast here on the network got his first fantasy baseball hit with a jaw bat, a double to left field. Tanner, my son's using his as well, both lefty and righty, the M110 model. He says he loves it, so I recommend Jaw Bats. Use RVG at checkout, all caps. You'll get a discount on not just their bats, but any apparel they have. It's a great, great young group. Uh, it's a company of two right now, so they're, they're, uh, they're hoofing it. Also want to congratulate our podcast hosts. We've been nominated for our second award for Baseball Podcast of the Year. First one was through Sports Podcast Group. The second one, and I'm not making up this title, is from the Webbies. So we have to fill out the uh, final paperwork today, but we've got that nomination as well. And want to thank our and welcome on board our newest partner in marketing, Millions. Uh, great group of guys. They're really pushing it for us in the advertising world. We're starting to get bombarded with potential sponsors. So with that regard, we brought on some, some new faces here to help us navigate those waters. So Millions, welcome on board with us. And with that, Mark Wiley, welcome back to your show. Glad to have you. Thanks, Dave. And we're really excited about having Tommy Craig on today. Um, you know, Tommy and I go way back. We were on the opposite sides of the fields in the minor leagues and major leagues. Um, I got to see a lot of his work firsthand. And, uh, you know, he's one of the best that's ever held a position of his, as a major league trainer. And as you'll hear through his bio description, um, He's done a lot more than just be a major league trainer. So uh, yeah, before you hit into that, I I, I I agree with that. I we had him on with with Jim Rooney, and then Tommy and I have got to have a couple conversations offline, and I'm just blown away every time I talk to him. So um, yeah, you're right. The, the the resume won't do justice what he brings to the table, but with that, I'll let you let you introduce his his background. Yeah, you know, Tommy is uh, pretty amazing. You know, his career. Um, it's spanned over 40 years in professional and amateur sports uh, as a trainer and therapist, teacher, nationally recognized speaker, and co-host of a nationally syndicated TV show. Um, he's worked with multiple Hall of Famers through his career and uh, uh, some of the best managers in baseball. Um, he graduated from Eastern Carolina University with a Bachelor of Science and I mean, uh, health and uh, exercise science. He's a certified uh, member of the National Association for Trainers. He's uh, licensed in Florida. And I'm sure at one time you were licensed in Canada. Um, uh, lots of certifications, uh, uh, including uh, functional movement screening. Um, 
he he started his career in the minor leagues as a minor league trainer for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, quickly moved to the Toronto Blue Jays, where you know he he spent from 1980 to 2000 in their organization as a minor league trainer, then assistant major league trainer, and then the head trainer for 12 years uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays, and then finished up as organizational rehab coordinator. Um, from there, he moved uh, to uh, <clears throat> Performance Rehabilitation Institute of Sports Medicine uh, as a, a director and owner um, from 2002 to 2007. Um, he, from, from 2006 to 2013, he worked for uh, World Baseball Classics as the head trainer for Canada. Uh, 2006 to 2016, he moved on to the Milwaukee Brewers as, as an integral part of their player development throughout their whole organization. Um, 2017, 2020, he was, uh, uh, was a ATC uh, con a concussion spotter for in Tampa for the National Football League. Um, he uh, moved into international sports with the uh, National Women's Fastball uh fast pitch softball team um, uh, from Beijing uh, from 2017, 2018, uh, 2019 till now. Um, he's been part of International Management Group, uh, that's IMG. Uh, he's worked with the Cal Calgary Stampeders and the CFL. He's worked with the USA Soccer Federation. And <clears throat> he's also since 19, uh, been part of the uh, a contract athletic therapist for the United States Tennis Association in Orlando. Um, he's had a lot of uh, accolades, awards, achievements, assignments that are pretty interesting. Um, in 78, he was uh, uh, part of the Olympic tryout for the uh, U.S. Olympic European handball uh, team. In 87, he was a guest speaker for the Major League Baseball Annual uh, Trainers Conference, um, Injury Prevention uh, and Treatment Technologies um, or Techniques. In 1990, he won the Good Guy Award for the Toronto uh, Sports Writers Hall of Fame, I mean, Heart, I'm saying Association, I'm sorry, Toronto Sports Writers Association. Uh, He's a member of the American Medicine Institute faculty uh, up until 2004, 2021, I mean, 2091 to 94, uh, four-time consulting trainer for the U.S. Olympic baseball trials. Um, from 85 to 93, he was a member of the Blue Jays where they, they had five-time East Division champions, uh, two pennants, and two World Series. Um, he uh, was a coordinator and organizer and fundraiser for uh, the Palm Harbor uh, Celebrity Golf Tournament and Baseball Clinic in 92 to 95. He was a co-host co of The Training Room, a, a medicine sports nationally syndicated television show across Canada in 1996. He received the uh, Dr. James R. Andrews Award for Excellence in Sports Medicine. Um, in 98, he was international speaking tour and baseball uh, clinics throughout the Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden with Major League Baseball and, and uh, PBA and PBATS. Um, uh, 
for Major League Baseball in 99. The International Prospect Conference was the guest speaker um, brought on by Adidas Canada and Major League Baseball. 2006 to 16, he was uh, part of the Goodwill Games in Australia, a trainer for the USA under 16, under 18 teams. And in 2012, Athletic Trainer of the Year in the Florida State League. 2013, member of the uh, became a member of the East Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame. 90 in 2015, he became the Greater Wilmington North Carolina Hall of Fame. And in 2021, um, he was an athletic trainer for the Canadian Baseball Olympic Trials. So as you can see, you know, Tommy's had some vast experience uh, in a lot of areas. He's, he's affected a lot of people's lives. Um, and I'm sure he's got some great stories to tell us today about some of his experiences. Hey. Tommy. Thank you, Mark. Um, I, I got an issue, Tommy, with that resume there. I know. It was a little long. I tried to cut it down to two pages instead of three. I, I want to know what haven't you done. Well, that's a good question. Man. I'm, I'm not in those Hall of Fames yet. I'm still trying to get in. I just nominated. So, But uh, if you love what you do, and um, I can honestly say I've never worked a day in my life. A lot of them have been harder than others, but when you're taking care of athletes for a living, watching ball games, and uh, you want to do what you can to help people prevent injuries, if they happen, you take care of them, and then if they end up uh, getting surgery, you rehab them. And uh, I tell you, it's been quite a quite a run. I've been fortunate in many ways. Um, I've worked around a lot of great people and mentors, and in the game of baseball, and, you know, I've uh, I've been in the right place at the right time on the cutting edge with sports medicine, because East Carolina was um, a very good sports medicine school for undergraduate um it was a um naturally recognized school accredited program but it, sadly it's not going to be accredited or program anymore but we have many people in the uh, major league baseball top ranks minor league baseball in the nfl and uh, i hope that program gets rejuvenated uh for a lot of reasons um I just happened to be today in Birmingham, Alabama at the American Sports Medicine Institute Conference. It's called the 42nd Annual Andrews Injuries in Baseball Course. And I probably, I don't know for sure, but I bet I've attended at least 37 of them all the way back to the original one. It's the best one-stop educational course or conference you can go to as an athletic trainer, especially if you work in baseball or overhead sports. Um, they're some of the best speakers here. They got the best faculty. I just happened to be a part of them for a long time. I've known Dr. Jim Andrews since 1980 when I took my first player there. And uh, that was Colin McLaughlin. He was the number one pick out of UConn. And uh, he did not do surgery on Colin, and we rehabbed him conservatively, and he went on the pitch, had a good career. I, he barely touched the major leagues 
as on the 40 man. But neither here nor there, I guess where I'm going with all this is that um, it's apropos that I'm sitting here at a sports medicine conference and we're getting ready to talk about some of the stuff that's on the cutting edge and how things have kind of gone a little backwards recently. Yeah, you know, you know, my question is, is, I mean, you've seen the technology since 1980 and how things have changed and treatments have changed. Um, you know, what did you learn about, you know, how you, it affected your implementing your, your treatments and some of the ideas you've had? Um, and what are some of the things that you think that we could go back to maybe as far as arm care is concerned? Well, it's funny you ask that. Um, I just heard Stan Conte, who was the old L.A. Dodgers head trainer and medical director, and he also did some work for the Marlins, and he spoke, he was one of the lead-off speakers this morning, and his entire talk was about how things have kind of gone backwards. Uh, you know, injuries are increasing. Um, it's... Um, the areas of impact are different. The the influence is different. Um, the DL is growing. The disabled has started in 1887. The National League created it in 1915. And it ran up until it was known as the DL, 1917 to 1974. Um, and the overall injury list, as they call it, the placement continues on. It to increase the number of people going on it and the dollars lost you know, in the millions, like $647 million. Um, It's kind of sad that they're making people. I'll always have a job, I guess, all of us clinicians, uh, athletic trainers, physical therapists, and physicians. Uh, if they keep breaking them, we're going to keep fixing them. So uh, I can honestly say that People have kind of got carried away with more is better. More is not better. You got to look at the big picture. Career longevity. You know what it is? The way I see it is the athletic trainer handles and the strength coach in combination or along, in conjunction with each other. Handle the daily preparation, performance, and getting people prepared for what they're going to do. The physical therapist handles the longevity of the rehab if somebody breaks. And hopefully they don't get to that point, but we have a big cycle going on out here where it's almost like at 12 o'clock you got a guy that, it's one of my favorite slides that I always put up when I talk. At 12 o'clock you got the guy who's healthy and doing well. Around about 15 after, he gets, starts getting a little tight. Then he starts getting a little weak at 20 after. And then you get around there till about 25 after, and he can't locate his pitches, or he can't serve, or he can't do something that he normally did and make things happen consistently. Because you can repeat your motion, serve. No, what happens is 
They can't do that as much. Guess what? Now they complain around there about 1230. And this cycle continues to go on. They try to get through it a little bit. And then they start getting hit or getting beat. And now they say they're hurt. And we got, as clinicians, trainers, we got to start reversing this cycle. So what do we do? The first thing we do is we talk to our pitching coach. We're going to have to start throwing rest, start giving them rest, start skipping sides. And now i got to reverse this cycle and get it back around to where they're pain-free first. Now I can work on strength, range of motion, and then we start picking the ball back up, start throwing again, see if we can throw strikes, and see if we can throw it in the zone. And we start changing speeds. Well, what they don't realize is the first thing that goes in this big cycle is location. And our velocity is right behind it. And the, the first thing to come back is location, and the last thing to come back is velocity. And that's all they focus on today. They just want to focus on velocity. And the risk of getting more velocity is not worth the reward. Um, I tell my players, I don't know how many times it's frightening me like a broken record, but not so much early on. You got to prepare for the long haul, not the quick fix. You didn't get in this predicament overnight, you're not getting out of it overnight. Well, that's exactly, to me, that's exactly. Um, that's exactly what what happens, and, and there's a lot of quick fixes. You know, it's funny. Years and years ago, even in the uh, like when I became a major league pitching coach in '87, uh, during my first ten years or so, um, the the guys would be rehabbed. Um, uh, you know, obviously, if it was a Tommy John situation, it took a lot longer. Um, but when guys had tendonitis or or different injuries like that uh, you know the trainer would handle it and the conditioning guy would handle it and then they would turn them over to me and i would put them through my throwing program and i used to have to argue sometimes with people that you know this is going to take time you know people want a guy to come back i say you want him to come back or you want him to come back and get hurt again you know so you know i used to throw, put him through my own throwing program for 11 days and uh it i will tell you it delayed the guys come back to the mound for like two weeks um uh, from what they wanted to come back but it it paid dividends because the guy didn't get hurt again uh and patience is something that's really difficult in our sport mm -hmm. sure is um well you got two different birds the player we had back then and this is kind of what made me a good trainer. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about it. I had guys that were afraid to get hurt. They didn't want to go on the DL because they were tough. They were, they were in the mindset, if I go on the DL and they throw me over there for, it was a 7 to 10 day, when it was a 15 day, and then it was a 60 day if you thought it was going to be a while. Well, they would replace you with a young guy, and let's say he 
did well. And uh, and we knew had to come back 30 days later, and he was setting it on fire and was dealing. Um, the other thing is I was fortunate enough to be a part of winners a lot of times. And it goes hand in hand. Uh, injuries don't bring losing. Losing brings injuries. And winning helps keep people on the field because they all want to be a part of that. As soon as you start going down the hill and start smelling things going bad, players start smelling things going bad too. And those, there's some guys that may be on the borderline. I call them system workers. And they used to just get ready. I could almost smell when they were going to break down or they got their ass kicked in a certain city. As soon as we got there, they were coming up with a cold mole or sore asshole and to get off the roster and get on the DL. And, it, you know, I wouldn't, you know, that's when I'd talk to them. I think I would talk to them. You know, I, I remember back in the day, we used an example of, uh, in the 20s, a guy named Wally Pipp played first base for the New York Yankees. Of course, I didn't take care of him because I'm not that old. Well, he had a, I don't even remember what the injury was, but he was playing every day at first base, and he decided to take a day off and take a breather. Well, a guy named Lou Gehrig came in and played in his spot and played the longest tenure of ever any ball player ever staying on the field was something like 2,000, 2,500 some odd games that was finally broken by Kyle Ripken. So we use the story, hey, don't, you don't want to be Wally Pipp because he never saw the field again. Well, you know, I used to talk to the managers about, they'd say, why didn't he tell us his arm was hurting? Why didn't he tell I us? I, you. you know, you I got pretty good at, hey, hey, Tommy, how at did observing you deal when guys oh, weren't right, um, even though when it wasn't real obvious. Um, but that's all part of experience of a, a pitching coach that has experience that can see those things. But often I'd have managers go, Mark, why didn't he tell us now he's going to be out? And I go, he didn't tell us for the same reason he's good. The reason he didn't tell you, maybe it wasn't that he was afraid somebody would take his spot. He was just tough. He was tough and he'd fought through a lot of things in his life and he wanted to post up and he wanted to go nine innings and he wanted to show he was good and all those things. And that still reflects back to a guy not wanting to bail out. He didn't want to be a guy that was in the trainer's room. And sometimes these guys hurt themselves because of that, but it's almost their nature. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, back in our day, I want to say our day, but in the 80s and 90s, players were tough. Um, there were some special players. They were hard workers. Then you have the guys today. They're a few more excuse makers. They're softer. And uh, I know, Mark, you probably remember, I had a guy named Dan Steve. He's probably one of the best pitchers in the American League for quite a while. On a, when they were an average team, and he had the best stats going, he also had the best slider in the game. And uh, he he got an attenuated ligament, which is a big word for stretch ligament, and he got some calcification in there. 
and he was working on a Tommy John. Well, he worked on it for about 10 years, and they thought at the end of the 10th year that I was pushing for him to have surgery in the offseason because he lived near, near me in Dunedin. I said, no, by no means. If anything, I'm trying to talk him out of it. Keep his shoulder strong. Keep his elbow and all the musculature around it strong. And Dave Steeb, to this day, has never got it fixed. And he could have cashed in that chip a long time ago with all that he had going on. And they would have probably done either Tommy John or this new procedure they're doing today where they put an internal fixation in that's been pioneered by Jeff Douglas. Here's a little bit of an even kicker to this story. Dave C came back towards the end of his career. He wore number 37 and he wasn't 37 years old. And he pitched again in AAA and started having some forearm, medium forearm pain. And he cashed in and said, I'm done. But he still has never gotten operated on. Well, I mean, he came back and was effective after years of not pitching. So my point is that some people are just tougher than others, and some people never cash in that chip under Tommy John, and others cash it in early. And they, there's a there's a fallacy in school of people out there that think you're going to come back throwing harder. No. So statistics say you throw a mile or two less. So, here's my point. If you do come back and throw harder, you won't believe that. You're in a select group. I'll tell you why. You do it. Because you're busting your ass doing all the things you should have been doing beforehand, before you broke down. Now, you've been for a solid year, and that's all you can focus on. you got to do just that. What did we work on first while we're in the sink? Just getting your motion and your strength and your grip back. Then we start working on shoulder strength. I haven't said one thing about the elbow yet. We start working on it, getting the motion back. And then we start working on elbow strength. And all the way around to about 11.8 months, we start letting you throw. And then you got to get about a year out before you start, you know, really throwing competitively. So, I mean, what have you accomplished if you? Coming back, we're going to come back stronger, maybe, all because of the work you did, not because of the surgery. Tommy, is it is it true that sometimes just before a guy, you know, a guy's, uh, he has to go to Tommy John, that all of a sudden, maybe the day that he injures it, um, uh, where, it where it's torn, um, his velocity actually goes up a few miles an hour just before it blows because it's it's getting extended. Um, is that true? Um, if it is, it's, it's a strike of luck. And maybe he knocked off. There's a little uh, bone permanence usually on the back of the lacrinone, which is the tip of the elbow, and sometimes you'll get a little buffer back there. And this little buffer is like a... Um, like I said, a bony prominence, and then when it breaks away, it becomes a loose body, and now that's when you put all the force and all the torque on the medial side of the leg, and you blow it out. 
before and you start having normal nerve problems. But I don't think most guys are just trying to get overextended and nobody operating on a partial tear back then. So they'd say you go to your blow. So maybe they, what they do is they just try to throw harder so they can finish it off and go get fixed. And you know, they'd come back throwing harder, but the chances of that are not as good as people think and what they're saying out there. I mean, if it is, it's because of all the hard work and the rehab they did. And I, to this day, put a lot of emphasis on prehab. And if I ever run a clinic or sports performance place again, I'll put the emphasis on prehab. I'll have these people coming in, working and doing all the things while they're healthy and not hurting so I can show them the proper way to do it, even if it's before, if they're working on surgery. Then when they have the surgery, they'll know what to do when they're done because they're going to be doing the same stuff when they're in the rehab. It's going to be called a pay me now or you pay me later. Well, you know, that, that's a really good thing. And I think that's what, you know, that's a good message for parents and young pitchers that if they focused on that rather than how hard they were throwing, they would stay healthy and, and maybe have better careers or even even uh, perform better. No doubt. Dr. Andrews, I'm looking at his picture right here on this brochure. He's 80 years old now. He is the foremost leader in all of this stuff. He's done many studies. Dr. John came along ahead of him and then it was Dr. Lou Yoakum. But Dr. Andrews in my eyes is still one of the if the very best. And it's the way he talks to the parents and the players. It's the way he handles their questions and the things that he tells them that makes him sets him apart. And then, I've heard from his fellows and other physicians that train down there, that he's a very best at calling an audible at the line. If he gets in there and he sees one that he bargained for, and he's got three ligaments that are blown out of the, on the collateral ligament, there's, uh, you know, three bands to it, and he's expecting one. And he, they'd say he can just have lib right then and fix it as good as anybody. And I was able, I was, I've been over his shoulder a few times, watched a few surgeries. I watched him operate on my son, Jeff Craig, when he was playing at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. He had a football injury in high school. We had to fix it his freshman year. And I got to watch it over Dr. Andrew's shoulder. Um, he will tell parents today, just what you said. It's not cool. I talk more parents out of surgery than into it. And I try to get them to do the things that we're talking about right now, which is working hard to avoid it. And then if you do end up having to have it, you're going to take away days on the back end because you were that much stronger or that much better going in, if it makes any sense. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's, they, that message has to be uh, taught and then believed by the parents and the kids. And sometimes, uh, you know, they get all caught up in 
how hard they want their kid to throw because they think that they get financial benefits, scholarship benefits, signing benefits, um, rather than taking care of what's important first um, before you focus on the end result. Absolutely. Dr. Andrews used to tell us, there's a guy who said, we need about three months of rest after the season. Uh, the worst thing you can do is sit down for two weeks and come back for instructional league and start throwing again. Those guys got in a rocking chair and they really didn't do much. But then the other side of the coin is you rested some and then you got feeling good again. But you've got to put the baseball down in the off season. And you stay in two months now and really three. And work on Something else. If you want, if you're bored, play another sport. I don't mind that. The same muscles are going to do it. But it, but my point is, you're not pitching if you're a pitcher. And if you want to do something, put the emphasis on that tubing. There's lightweights, running. Go play some racquetball. Go play some golf. But get your mind off of baseball and relax. And then. Pick up the baseball. Come if you're in the pros or college, you want to start back up around January. Tossing lightly. These guys have got three sides in, throwing forty pitches wide ass open, and they haven't even got the spring training yet. And they break two of them down. If they're in the minor leagues, they break them before March. And what good is that? I'm also seeing guys get ready too quick, and then get in. Uh, the motive I want to back up and take it easy for a little bit because I want to be ready to go when the horn blows. Well, all this stuff is contradictory. It's working against you. And uh, what about what about years ago when you know we pitched? You know, we pitched a lot. I don't think we were throwing against against radar guns. Uh, guys pitched winter ball. Um, uh, guys threw 300 innings in the major leagues. Uh, you know, today it seems like we limit the use of these kids so much that, and then it's an all-out sprint when they get out there. It's like in the minor leagues, we, we cut guys off at five innings pitched in a minor league game, your best prospects, he gets to the major leagues, and, you know, major leagues is a lot different. It might have been trained for three innings now that you only threw five. You know, you throw as hard as you can for fears, and you'll get somebody else in there, and everything's kind of a specialty. Well, on my way here the other day, I called a good friend of mine, and he has a record that'll never be broken. When I say never, it won't even come close to being broken. And a good friend and teammate of his has a record that's going to be hard to be scratched, too. And their names are Rick Langford and Daryl Knowles. Now, Rick Langford threw 22 games, complete games in a row for the Oakland A's. He came out in the 23rd start, eight and two-thirds innings, and he ended up throwing 28 complete games that year out of his 31 starts. Just think about that a minute. We got people looking in the dugout in the fifth inning. One, because they're tired, they're out of gas, or they got that W and they want to leave. Rick 
Langford stayed out there and didn't know any better. And he's probably one of the greatest pitching coaches I ever met. And his good friend, Darrell Moles, in that same era, threw in seven straight World Series games and got the save. Or the he was the setup guy, whatever. Both of them were pitchers, not power pitchers. They took away, they added on, they pitched. They weren't throwers. And they played for three world champions in a row. The Oakland A's did it in the early 70s. So this is stuff that we have records on, history. We can talk about it all you want, but these guys are some of the best at what they did. And Tommy John injuries, UCL injuries weren't up then. Today they're up. Shoulder injuries are up. Surgeries are up. In major MIL, major, minor league baseball's cut out 40 teams and they still got more injuries. <laughs> and in the hitters, guess what's up a lot? The oblique injuries, cranking, trying to hit one out of the stadium and trying to be more than you. Stay within yourself. How many guys do you think stayed within themselves Pitch with a hangover and throw a perfect game like David Wells did one time. <laughs> and I know the story you didn't mind me telling it. Boomer, a good friend of mine, was a high round pick by the Blue Jays. And we went over to the Yankees. He went out one night, stayed out all night with the cast of the Saturday Night Live. He had his son and his father in town, so he had to take them to the airport on a Sunday morning, like at 9.30 flight. He forgot that he was pitching and starting at 1 o'clock that day. He uh, was hungover, worn out, started throwing his warm-up pitches, and he's talking to Mel Steinmeier, he's spiking stuff in the dirt, getting pissed off, gets mad with himself, Mel says, Boomer, are we going to have to get somebody else or are you going to be able to do this? He said, Mel, I'm going to do it. He got even madder, threw one out of Yankee Stadium under the street. Did his warm up, went inside, drank a bunch of water, and came back out and threw a perfect game that day. Today they may tell you you can't pitch. You can't pitch. I, I know a story when one of my friends was sitting in a meeting with the Cardinals, and this is about a hitter, and they were saying that the data said he played too many games in a row, and he was just due for a few days, due for a day off. That guy played that day and hit three home runs that they were talking about. That's what happens. I got a David Wells story. <laughs> show you his toughness. Um, I was coaching the All-Star game in Colorado in uh, uh, 1998, and uh, he was our starting pitcher. And I was throwing batting practice before the All-Star game to the lineup, and uh, the pitchers jump in there because, you know, they may have to hit. It was a National League park, so it was, you know, just in case he had to hit, he jumped in there to bat. So I'm throwing batting practice to him and 
and he's hitting the ball and everything. And uh, I jammed him by accident. He jammed <laughs> himself probably. Anyway, after batting practice, he comes over to me and he goes, man, you got in on me in that one. And I go, you okay? And he says, oh, I'll be okay to pitch. And he showed me his hand and his thumb was swelled up like twice the size it normally was. <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me. He says, no, I'll be good. He went out and threw like three shutout innings that day. Mm-hmm. And his thumb was like swelled like twice the size it normally was. <laughs> yeah, you never knew him, but we had to hold people back some days and make sure that he was going to be able to go. And other days he'd go right out there and deal. And but uh, well, sometimes it, when you you have you know I can speak from experience. You know, I pitched with strep throw one time through a complete game and and had other things like that sometimes it takes your mind off of it you know and you're just focused on making pitches um you're not trying to do too much because parts of your body aren't feeling that great and you end up doing better than you normally do mm-hmm. exactly right you worked with a major league trainer for a long time and you know i think people don't realize i do because i was a pitching coach and i know the impact the trainers had on my pitchers on, you know, not only physically preparing them for games, but mentally preparing them for games. I mean, do you have any story about maybe something you said or did to a guy um, that you felt helped him that was more part of the mental skills kind of a coach job than a trainer's? Yeah, it comes up there more than you think, just like you said, but I think it's the way I talked to him anyway. Um, my demeanor... Um, I can do it in a funny way and joke with them. And uh, I never had many confrontations at all with players about playing or not playing or anything, really. Uh, I just try to get the best nine out there often. And I think it was the way I talked to them. Plus, I was working with an era that, you know, they were tough, like you're saying. Today's a lot softer. I said, uh, Dave Steve and guys like that, going back to him, and I can tell you a funny Pete Rose story. Um, but Dave Steve has the record for uh, the longest tenure between at bats because he was a Blue Jay when he first came up, and I'll shorten this down and you'll, you'll get my point. He was. Uh, an outfielder in Southern Illinois, he drafted as a pitcher and he went to play the outfield in the Florida State League and didn't do too well. So they said, we're just going to make him a pitcher all the way now that he's realized that he can't hit. Well, he uh, ended up playing uh, in the outfield in the first year in the big leagues. Otto Valera's got in a car wreck in the middle of the night. And I wasn't even there. I was in AAA or AA. And the story goes, nobody knew Otto Velez was hurt and injured and wasn't going to show up. And they played a game until 1 o'clock in the morning. It was tied. And they have an ordinance in Toronto. You can't play an inning after 1. So they had to come back the next day and play a continuation game. And Otto was in the lineup. And Dave Steele had to go play left field because Otto was hurt. So he got an at-bat, got jammed, and... I think he grounded out to the pitcher. And then he goes and plays left field and 
held a guy up from going first to third and made a good throw to the plate. Well, that was in 1983. And then when he made a comeback, 17, 18 years later, or when we were playing in Atlanta, we're now playing in Little League play and the pitcher gets to hit. He hit in Atlanta like 18 years later. So that was between his A-Bs. And, you know, it's just, you just never know in baseball. That's why it's one of the, probably the best games. A lot of stories, you just can't make them up. They just write themselves. We, people can't believe some of the stuff. Now, you've been around some of the greatest baseball players, not only pitchers, but Hall of Famers, Cy Young Award winners. Is there any, like, common trait that you, you saw in some of those guys? Preparation. And these, these guys, uh, the Monitors, the Robbie Alomars, um, you know, that's two Hall of Famers. Dave Winfield, um, they, they all came to play every day. They weren't looking to take a hike, and they weren't, uh, you know, we just had a great team, and sometimes managing a great team is hard to do, like Cito did. He can hear them, and the two of us together, we're talking about off days and how we're going to mix them in and things like that, but I'd have to say the preparation. The players came to play, they... Um, they always stretched. They did that as a group, um, whether it was myself or the strength coach. We'd do an active warm-up. Uh, some of them would take BP and work on things. I can remember Tony Fernandez. He would hit from his left side and he would spray balls to left field. Then he would go up the middle in BP, and then he would pull balls in his last uh, few swings. And then he would get on the right side of the plate and do the same thing. Hit balls to right field, then he would hit balls up the middle, and then he would pull balls. And uh, he was just phenomenal. He was a, you know, just a, probably one of the greatest players I ever met day in and day out. One of the hardest workers. He never took any time off. He never played cards. He never, I never heard him cuss. Uh, he, he's really the greatest guy I've ever had been around the game, greatest player. He's a Hall of Famer for me as soon as he can be in. But uh, people don't realize the guy made only like three or four errors one year. And I don't know how many chances because he could get to a lot of balls. But you know what he did? He prepared. He practiced. Practice is more important than playing sometimes. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be with Tony in Cleveland. He, he won the pennant with a home run. Uh, against Baltimore in Baltimore, one to nothing for us to clinch the pennant uh, in the ALCS. And uh, he was, he played second and short for us. And I remember, you know, Willie Upshaw, who was my roommate at one time in the minor leagues, he told me, he says, Mark, when I'm playing first base, it didn't matter where the ball was hit to shortstop. I would run to first base. I put my glove up and he would hit me in the chest with it every time. Angle. Yeah. He had a usual throwing action. It almost looked like he pushed the ball over there. It was really weird. You know but what I tell people? It looked like he, it was Spider-Man shooting the ball out of his wrist like a web. <laughs> exactly. The, I don't know if anybody... He's facing to the field, 
and turn his upper body and shoot a perfect strike to first base behind and fielding the ball behind second base. I mean, he made plays that we're still talking about him today. God rest his soul. He, he died at a young age due to kidney failure a couple of years ago. But I'll tell you one thing. There ain't nobody worked any harder than anybody could play it any better. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, and you talk about shortstop, but a lot of people don't know about Tony because he played a lot of years in Canada, and he um, he's just a phenomenal player. I got a story for you. In 1980, I never will forget it. I was in Kinston, North Carolina, which, whew, boy, if they're going to get the world an enema, that's where they put, put it, but... That's where I started. And I get a call from Epi one day. He said, Tommy Craig, it's Epi. I said, I'm going to help. How you doing? He said, very good. I'm going to send you a little 16-year-old knobby-kneed boy tomorrow. He said, you take very good care of him because he's going to play in the Grande Liga for a very, very long time. I said, I'm a great Epi. I said, what's his name? He said, Octavio Fernandez. We call him Tony and Cabeza because he's got a big fucking head. He said, but uh, you take care of him because he's going to play in the major leagues. And he was 16 when he arrived. He was riding to the ballpark the second day there, sitting on the handlebars of a bicycle. And Julio Franco is driving the bicycle. And he sticks his foot, well, it wasn't Julio Franco, Julio Paula. He sticks his foot in the spokes. The bike does a 360. Tony hits the concrete, knocks himself out, wakes up with a big cut in his head and his chin. Can't, I had to take him to the ER, get stitches, and he came to the ballpark like little Bo Pete the next day and played. <laughs> Rest yeah, is history. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a great player, and I agree with you. People don't realize how great a shortstop he was and how great a player being a switch hitter and everything and a really good hitter, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, I you, you, you work with some great starters like, you know, Clemens, I guess, Cone, uh, uh, Pat Hinkin, um, a lot of great players, you know, and, and – you know what people don't understand you know you hear a lot about people talking about number one starters now you know oh, he's a number one starter well you know like the reason those guys were so great pedro included a lot of other great pitchers they were true number one pitchers because they gave the team an expectation that they could win every day every time they went out there they they were an example not only to the other pitchers who wanted to emulate them, but they, they helped teach coaches like myself. I'd see the greatest players and you'd see them do things and prepare differently than other people. And you'd learn and you'd be able to pass that on to them. Um, they lose, they'd stop losing streaks. So, you know, if every, every day they pitched, you had a good chance of breaking a losing streak. So no team got on a really bad losing streak when they had a number one starter. And, and not to mention rest in the bullpen because they used to go so deep into games. And, of course, back in, in the day when guys threw complete games, they gave the bullpen the whole day off. But, you know, 
that's what I laugh about now when you talk about a guy like Snell, and I'm not saying anything against him, but he threw 180 innings and won the Cy Young Award, you know, uh, with like no complete games. So, you know, uh, he won the Cy Young Award. Usually Cy Young Awards were number one starters that did the things I just described. You don't see that in today's game. Tell me about some of those guys that were so great. Yeah. Well, I had a few of them, and uh, I almost think I had at times three number ones. You know, you have a Jimmy Key, a Dave Steve, a Pat Hemken, and then you got Roger Clemens, Pat Hemken. I even had Jack Morris in his 40s when he came over to us. And, um, you know, those guys got their own routine, their own preparation. But most of those guys... You know, they, they prepared on their own or with the strength guy. They did a lot of, uh, like, going back to Tony Fernandez, I called him Mr. Gadget. He was always working his wrist and forearm and squeezing putty. And, but he never played cards and he never sat around and did wasted time. He, you know, and that's kind of what some of those pitchers I just named, they were always doing something to get better or, but it's not necessarily overdoing it. They, it was, it's got to be gauged. And if you got a question, ask somebody, and hopefully we can get you ready and prepared for down the road. But certainly don't leave your your game in the weight room. Don't leave it in BP swings. Uh, sometimes the guy that does skip society throws his best game. Uh, Juan Guzman did that one time. He was 8-0. And I, he wasn't recovering real good. He was getting tight and he was you know, just not rebounding. We were right before the All-Star break and he threw a hard slatter and people thought it was a fork ball and his changeup had some funky movement. And, but he put a lot of effort into his arm. And people... But look at him and I didn't know what pitch he threw. And uh, that was because he was deceptive. But uh, my point is, is that all these guys worked hard and Guzzi wanted to take some time off and just work with me and do some things. And I said, let him go to the All-Star game, but don't pitch him. And we'll give him recovery time and then we'll bring him back after the All-Star game, and hopefully we can avoid the DL because I just don't like the way he's bouncing back, getting tight. Well, he ended up going on the DL, but he ended up pitching for us in the playoffs that year, and, of course, we went on to win. Well, you know, it's knowing yourself, too. I mean, trainers and pitching coaches, we try to know the pitchers so we can help with that. You know, we can catch them, but, you know, the best players kind of know themselves. You know, like when I had really top pitchers, sometimes I was thinking, you know, maybe we ought to uh, skip a, a side this time. And before I'd even say it, they'd say, you know, Mark, I'm thinking about skipping a side this time. And I said, great idea. You know, they kind of know themselves. They know because they understand their body probably better than a lot of the other guys because they're so good, uh, not only physically, but they, they mentally and, and, and feel and body awareness, they're, they're a little better than some of the other guys. Exactly right. They are in tune with their body. Um, they listen to their body. 
And uh, sometimes if you give a player a little leeway or give him a day off or give him, you'll get two fold out of him the next time. You know, he'll give you that much more effort. Um, you know, a lot of sports and a lot of exercises all tax the same muscles. But if they listen to their body and, and pay attention to what it's telling them, then they know what to back off of. Like if your legs are killing you, then don't run that day. Work your upper body. If your upper body's tired because you threw 90 pitches in a complete game, then just ride the bike lightly the next day and go for a light jog in the outfield. But, um, you know, it's just listening to your body, having good work ethic, um, work in moderation. Know your weaknesses and work on them, not your strengths. And, uh, you know, stay within yourself. Uh, you know, we, we had... We had Jim Palmer on the show, and uh, you know, and I know I was, you know, had a lot to do in the organization, uh, Orioles organization at one time, and I, and I remember um, uh, Ralph Salvon, who was the trained, longtime trainer for the Orioles back in the day, and he used to say, you know, Earl gets mad at Jim because, you know, when Jim says, hey, I'm kind of hurting, you know, I need to skip a start or something. And he says, Earl had a hard time understanding that. He says, but Jim knows his body as good as anybody. And when he's not right, he doesn't want to go out there and not perform like he can perform. And he says, that was always a battle between the manager and the player. Uh, of course, that was old school. and They were together for years. Mm -hmm. Father and son kind of thing. But, uh, you know, those guys knew themselves. You know, I played with Gaylord Perry. I played with some some great Hall of Fame pitchers, Burt Blylevin, and uh, like you said, they they knew how to prepare. Um, sure, they were stronger and more durable than other people because that's how they became Hall of Famers. But on the other hand, they knew how to stay durable and stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Now, type training and thinking about. How many pitchers you may have to be required to throw, and recovery is just as important as work. I remember I heard Burt Mylevin say one time, speaking of him, he said, "I throw as hard as I always did. It just doesn't get there as fast." <laughs> yeah, you, you know, all three of those guys I mentioned were unbelievable competitors and athletes. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to see Belivelin when he first arrived, and uh, uh, Bert, he could run. He we do foul poles, and he'd be leading the pack all the time. His legs were like twice as long as the rest of us. His strides would be, be two of ours, and uh, we used to say, hey, "Can't you slow it down a little bit? We're trying to keep up with you." But you know, they had natural strength. You know, let's go back to your, you know, those two back-to-back -back World Series championship teams that you were part of, you know, not very many teams have been back-to-back -to, -back to the World Series and won it. Um, what was what was special about those teams um, uh, that you remember? Well, we had a lot of winners, and we have quite a few players that could play, as I mentioned. 
seat open and went well. And we had a great coaching staff. We all worked well together. Um, I worked with Galen Sisko, Mel Queen were my pitching coaches, and um, John Sullivan was in the bullpen. And prior to that, I had Bobby Cox, and Jimmy Williams was my third base coach, and he went on to manage later. But uh, we just had a good atmosphere, a good clubhouse. And I, I'm, I don't mean to sound like it's just great players all the way around, but sometimes it's harder to manage a group like that and keep everybody going and loose. And uh, that's the one thing I took pride in is keeping my players loose. And they could come in my training room and it was a sanction they – they want to get away from the press and talk to me and not, or my assistant or strength coach and not have to deal with any of what was going on outside of there. They could do that. And um, and I think and I didn't run to the front office with things that didn't need to be said. I only went up there with something that pertained to an injury and what was important. And uh, I can honestly say that Pat Gilly was... Uh, he picked up on the fact that uh, I could keep them on the field and talk to them, and they played for me, and they played for Cito, and uh, we had a lot of great players in terms of people, personalities, and Pat Gillick and Gordash and Beeston were very good at getting those type of players and uh, our the, one of the biggest things that I give credit to is our scouting. They scouted as good as anybody. We signed players that didn't end up playing for us very long. We end up training them away, and two of them made me a whole thing was Mike Young and Jeff Kent. But we were just loaded. We were very deep in the minor league system. Uh, I had a good staff down there as far as trainers and strength coaching. We all work well together. And I always told our trainers to be best of friends with your pitching coach. You two guys got to be beer drinking buddies and talk all the time. I don't care. The player can't be around necessarily, but you can talk to them, you know, and believe in one another. And that's one thing I always remember. I was leaning on a rail one time. We were looking at, we were going bad. We had like 99 losses. This wasn't in the big leagues. We're leaning some of the pitching coach, and we're looking at a guy on the mound going bad, and he said to me, TC, you look at enough horse shit, you'll start believing in horse shit. And uh, we didn't lose that game, but we ended up losing 99 of them. But we won it all the next year. <laughs> You know, the thing is, is that trust is so important in everything, not only sports, but when it's the relationship between the trainer and the coaches and the manager, the front office, you know, you see so many turnovers now in sports. Um, that's a direct relationship to trust. You know, uh, they don't really, they're hiring guys and they don't really trust them. They just hope it works out. And then as soon as they, anything hits the fan, uh, they want to get rid of the guy and replace him. You know, there's no um, chemistry really between front offices. And I think the ones that do have it are very successful. Um, and that's what some of the poorer teams don't understand. 
Right, I agree. And when they go back, I'm not saying there isn't a good correlation between new screen data, um, you know, uh, the statistics, and old school, but the first team that comes about halfway back on this circle is, is going to win for a long time. And that, to me, looks like the Atlanta Braves. Um, but you don't know. And I show the inside, and you're there every day, and I always – the people on the inside know best. They know the players. They know who the winners are. They know the chemistry. And they know who they got to get rid of and who they need to keep around as a good example or whoever, you know, works hard and understands his role. And that's, that kind of stuff goes a long way, probably more so today than ever. You know, it's funny, the, the press and fans, that you know, they, they want to know everything. You know, and they don't understand that there's some things that that they can't be privy to, especially the press. They get upset because they're not told something. You know, really, uh, our job is to win, and you knowing it doesn't make us a better team to win. So sometimes you have to keep those, you know, injuries, uh, something that's a, a nagging injury. Maybe there's a reason why you're not using a bullpen guy, but you don't want to broadcast it. Um, and all these people think they should be privy to it. That's what kills me. Yeah, it does me too. And uh, sometimes it's best to keep your dirty laundry in house and don't talk about it. And that's what it was in the old days. Now the systems, uh, AHMS, not saying it's a bad way. Of, it's a good way of keeping up with things. They put a lot of stock in keeping the records, which you have to do because you're writing yourself a note. 10 years later down the road, but I don't think other teams should be able to have privy now as long as they are able to look at some other team or players' records when they're getting ready to make a trade. In the old days, we told them what they needed to know, usually the good and the bad, and then if it's off the record, we talk to trainer to trainer and say, hey, you're getting a good guy, you're getting a turd. But, you know, it was, I still think um, it's, it's knowing what to say and what not to say. And, you know, a lot of times uh, it, it, it's, it's just leaving something alone and you're better off, you know, my mom and dad say, if you can't say it. When you're talking to somebody about a player, often it's what he doesn't say that tells you what, what you want to know. Exactly. Like they know, my friends would know. I they'd ask me if I was comfortable talking about an ex player or something, and the things I didn't say to them, they understood. Um, uh, you know, there's obviously players that we all love that you know they take care of business. They're team players. They they're selfless. They're so happy for everybody else, even though they're great players and they do well. They're more happy for their friends that do well. Um, we all want to be surrounded by those guys, but you know, no team has has 25, 26 of those guys. No. Isn't it? You know, and that's all part of dealing with people's personalities and getting the most out of them. And, you know, I, I don't know who was it said that, you know, uh, you may never talk to a guy off the field, but he better be one of your best friends on the field. And that's the truth. I, I saw it. I saw it with Albert Bell. Um, his players, the players in the team, understood how, how Albert. They knew how to handle him. They didn't pay attention to his rants and stuff. 
it didn't make them lose their focus. But I've seen other teams where a guy was detrimental because everybody's focus went to the guy uh, rather than the game. So, you know, it's all how they they learn to deal with them, whether they come up with the guy, how well they know them, um, even dealing with guys that have, you know, are difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your mentors? Let's, let's wrap it up by talking about a few of your mentors that you think really had an impact on your career. Well, I started um, way back in uh, the 70s with Larry Starr, who was, um, he had uh, hired you and he hired me to be a young trainer with the Reds organization. And his AAA trainer was Ronnie McLean, who went on to become the major league trainer for the Expos. There's two guys that were a part of that staff and were, um, you know, very alongside of me. I had uh, at East Carolina, Rod Compton, he was a very good teacher, a sports medicine guy who was Larry Starr's um, roommate, and he was a co-trainer at Ohio U, and then Ronnie Barnes taught me at East U, and he's, at 70 years old, he's still the medical director for the New York Giants. So that's from the sports medicine perspective. From baseball perspective, um, sort of I would say Bobby Cox, I used to ride into the ballpark with him a lot because we lived in the same condo in Toronto in the first season, 85 and 86. Had a lot of good talks with him and Jimmy Williams. And Cedar Gatson and I were tight. Uh, he would give me a lot of insight about how it was when he was playing. And uh, he called me his white son. So we had a good rapport. And he, he, you know, there's, there's all kind of people that I ran across in the game that probably I'm leaving out right now. Because I had a, I had a lot of people that helped me along the way and told me things that you know I never forgot. And I somewhere along down the road later, I would put it into put it into play. Well, this has been a great show, and I know people got a lot of great insights and information from you. And uh, you know, again, we'd love to have you on again sometime. Um, there's you have so much information and so much. Uh, so many things to teach our listeners, uh, particularly some of the young guys and their parents uh, that need to understand that that preparation and the pre-rehab is as important as anything else you'd learn. Yes, it certainly is. And I'd love to do a, you know, another show where I'm putting a little more emphasis on those things because that's my love and I want to get a message out to the parents and the kids uh, what to do and what not to do going forward and whether it's in a sports performance facility like Dr. Andrews wants to do in Tampa, Florida, if it's a podcast like this, uh, or I'm just doing a one-on-one with a, with a kid in my driveway, just trying to teach them uh, the basics and what to do and what not to do. Well, you guys were phenomenal. Tommy, thanks for taking time out of your day, too. I know you're at a conference, and I know how important you are to that conference, but to step aside for well over an hour and give our 65,000 subscribers another treat today. We appreciate that. And, and Mark, I, I don't know. I, I think I learn uh, as much or more from you 
uh, every podcast and, and maybe anything I do throughout the week, not just your, not just the information you extract from the guest and that you provide, but just how prepared you are. Um, I, I, uh, I tell people, they ask all the time, you know, what's, what's Mark Wiley like? Because you're well known and well thought of throughout the baseball world. I'm sure you know that. Um, and I was looking forward to this one today just to kind of sit back and listen because you, you two are mirror images of the, 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 the amount of preparation, the amount of time, and, and uh, how meticulously are, you are about your crafts. I couldn't wait to get you two guys together talking on this podcast today. So thank you both for, for being you. Um, just so prepared, so professional, so much information. Our audience gets a treat every week with Mark. But, uh, Tommy, we've been lucky to have you on twice within a week's time, right? Yeah. So we're going to talk more about how to make that more often. But uh, to our audience, thank you for your support. Jaw Bats, thank you. RVG at checkout gets you a big, big discount off of bats or any apparel that you want. And then to our uh, audience, again, thanks for supporting us, the Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies for uh, Baseball Podcast of the Year. Just a nomination. Didn't get the award. If we do get it, I promise we won't have to give the trophies back. Everything will be on the up and up with that. And then to Millions, our new marketing partner, thank you. We look forward to a very lucrative 2024. So um, with that, Mark, thanks so much for a day at the yard. Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Will obviously is on assignment this week with the Colorado Rockies. And, Tommy, enjoy the rest of the conference. And uh, with that, we'll be back next week. Uh, we've got a doubleheader today with Peter King from Pro Football Focus following this up. And tomorrow you'll hear from KFT, a date in October with KFT, uh, going through the free agency uh, stuff that she, she picked apart. And then the sauce, of course, will will recap college football this week for us and preview the NFL Sunday. So thanks again, guys. Thanks, Dave. Yeah,